0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale
1: University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this, this podcast is Dr. Rafael Perez-Escamilla, professor of epidemiology and director of the Office of Community Health at the Yale University School of Public Health. He's been, had a long history of work on maternal and child health and is especially interested in health disparities he's widely published and has been instrumental in a number of important committees including the 2009 Institute of Medicine National Academy of Sciences pregnancy weight gain guidelines committee and also more pertinent to this podcast the 2010 US dietary guidelines scientific advisory committee so welcome Raphael.
0: thank you for having me here kelly
1: So what an interesting background you have. And let's talk about the the dietary guidelines. These are words that people hear a lot, but a lot of Americans don't know exactly what the dietary guidelines are, where they come from, what the implications of these dietary guidelines are. But you had a pivotal role in helping develop the dietary guidelines because of your presence on the Scientific Advisory Committee. Could you tell us a little bit about how these dietary guidelines come about and and maybe about how important they are because they reach into so many sectors of society?
0: Absolutely. That's a great question. The dietary guidelines have been revised and reissued every five years since 1980. It is mandated by Congress because they are so important for setting all the guidelines for the federal programs, federal policies related to food and nutrition in the country that the government wants to make sure that all the scientific information is updated every five years. The process for developing the dietary guidelines involves, first of all, the appointment of a committee of scientific experts by the Secretaries of Agriculture and the Department of Health and Human Services. In this instance, I was very lucky to have been nominated and confirmed as one of the 13 scientists responsible for revising the literature and making specific recommendations to the federal government as to which are the best dietary patterns that we can recommend for the American public. The dietary guidelines target uh, individuals who are at least two years of age. So two, if you are two years old or above, you are being targeted uh, by the guidelines. And what the guidelines uh, try to do is to provide policymakers, but most importantly, the public at large, with the most up-to-date Scientific information as to the best food choices that they can make for themselves and their families, and not only individual food choices, but actually the totality of the diets that they consume.
1: And I know that this is an enormous scientific enterprise because there's a massive scientific literature on so many, on, on each of so many aspects of diet, that it's a pretty daunting enterprise to bring this all together. And then I know um, from what you've explained that then the, the government agencies take the recommendations of the committee and issue the final guidelines. Uh, is in, in your experience, at least with this most recent set of guidelines, did the government stay pretty true to the recommendations of the Scientific Advisory Committee?
0: Yes, I would say that the vast majority of recommendations made by the Scientific Committee were adopted, by the federal government. And anyone who's interested in them, they can simply read the policy report that was released into earlier this year by the federal government entitled 2010 Dietary Guidelines for Americans. And they can be found at dietaryguidelines.gov. So it's very easy to remember.
1: So could you give give some examples of, of some of the final recommendations that came out from the dietary guidelines process?
0: Yes. So what I think is very important is that the public at large should be paying a lot of attention to their overall dietary patterns and not only to individual foods or food groups or nutrients. So the dietary guidelines fully endorse a dietary pattern that includes lots of fresh fruits and vegetables that includes a very good amount of uh, whole grain cereals and strongly recommends uh, decreasing the consumption of uh, solid fats or saturated fat the consumption of refined sugars or simple carbohydrates and the consumption of sodium those Three nutrients are usually found in very unhealthy processed foods that we should be paying a lot of attention to when we read the food labels to avoid uh, consuming them. The dietary guidelines also endorsed, the 2010 dietary guidelines also endorsed very heavily an increased consumption of seafood, of fish, because in terms of the analysis that we did, the benefit uh, to the U.S. population, in terms of the wonderful uh, protection that omega-3 fatty acids can offer against heart disease and also the role that omega-3 fatty acids derived from fish can have in improving the intellectual development of children, it really made a lot of sense for the committee to call to the attention of the authorities and the public at large that we are heavily under consuming fish in the country, and it deserves much more education and promotion.
1: It seems to me from seeing previous versions of the dietary guidelines that one of the most significant changes was the part that you said about recommendations to eat less saturated fat, refined sugar, and the like, and sodium. Um, The government has been notoriously reluctant to say, to to recommend that people eat less of anything in the past, presumably because of pressures from the food industry. And I know there's been criticism of previous um, dietary guidelines of having too much food industry influence. Um, Was the food industry a presence in in this process? And how much influence do you think they had over the final recommendations? I,
0: I can attest in terms of the scientific committee that There was no undue influence whatsoever from industry in terms of our deliberations. We used a a very neutral uh, scientific process to assess the evidence that is referred to as systematic literature reviews, whereby without knowing beforehand which were the papers that were going to be selected for review, we defined a... very specific criteria in terms of the quality of studies that we wanted, the topics that we wanted to review. And the wonderful staff that we had was very thorough and very good and insisted always on us reviewing all the evidence and not be selective as to what we would include or exclude. I do want to say that in terms of the recommendation for less consumption of a sugar, for example, and a sodium and so on, What we had available this time that previous dietary guidelines committees did not have in terms of evidence was how early in life the consumption of sugar, of solid fats, and of sodium starts to go up uh, dramatically. In some instances, it is very, very soon after birth. And we now have more and more evidence uh, documenting the harm that the consumption of products, Uh, containing high levels of uh, sugar, salt, uh, saturated fat, and so on, has on the health of children even at a very young age. So that evidence gave us a lot of scientific stature to be able to persuade the federal government that it was time to come out very strong with regards not only to increase the consumption of healthy foods, but also decrease the consumption of
1: unhealthy foods. So the consumption of foods high in salt and, and high, uh, say, like soda and the other the sugar delivery vehicles, if you will, is of great concern in even really young children?
0: Yes. But yes. I mean,
1: how young are kids are drinking these things or eating these things at a very young age?
0: Right. So kids that are as young as three years of age, especially if they are minority kids, African-American, Latinos, have a significantly higher risk, I should say, of consuming sodas, and consuming uh, junk food uh, and fast food in relationship to their Caucasian uh, counterparts.
1: Now, to turn to a a different issue, um, the government over the years has chosen different ways of communicating the dietary guidelines to the population, their reports and websites and things like that. But the government usually tries to come up with some kind of an easy-to-read, understand graphic of these things, and the most recent version before 2010 were uh, successive versions of a food guide pyramid that were used. And I know there was a lot of criticism about whether the public could understand that or whether it really conveyed very helpful information. And this time, a different graphic has been used. Can you explain what the new graphic is and why that was chosen?
0: Yes. I think that a major outcome from the 2010 dietary guidelines process has been the so the, the the change from the pyramid that was used before, especially my pyramid, to a simple plate that very graphically conveys to the public that at least half of their diet should be formed by fruits, vegetables, and other, and other healthy products. I think that my plate is going to become a very powerful nutrition education tool. I have been a community nutritionist uh, for over 20 years. And I can tell you that uh, the pyramid was not easy to use. It was not easy for people to understand why some foods were at the top, some at the bottom. And the last uh, icon, my pyramid, was practically impossible to understand for a lot of people. All those colored horizontal lines and essentially what people could distinguish from that icon was an individual performing exercise but there was very little really useful information related to diet i must say that it is going to be time as well to think about low health literacy and low computer literacy audiences because my plate is going to be an incredibly useful tool if people have access to the internet and know how to navigate it but i can tell you there is already a wealth of information that is being linked to uh, my plate so that people can really understand that there are many ways to come up with a healthy diet and that there are many different products that can be prepared in a way that is culturally appropriate for different groups, that there isn't a single recipe for all. What the plate does is really to open a whole universe of information, starting with a very simple message that we've been trying to convey for a long, long time. We need to increase our intake of fresh fruits and vegetables, of whole grain cereals, and obviously protein sources are very important. But it is important to understand that the amounts that we need are usually not as high as the amounts that we're eating
1: the the plate is so striking in its simplicity and it seems like it like as you said it will be a big advance in helping people just understand the fundamentals of nutrition that you know you can get a long way toward the goal line just by understanding a few simple things like half the plate of being things like fruits and vegetables so that looks like a big advance now that that's available at myplate.gov is that right right
0: and, right. and I think the gateway to anything that is related to the guidelines is dietaryguidelines.gov, and then there is a sublink which is myplate.gov right. available to anyone.
1: Do you do you think the uh, dietary guidelines are likely to affect the the nature of uh, federal food assistance programs like the SNAP program, which used to be food stamps? Um, what, what effect do you think they'll have there?
0: I, I believe so. I I think that the SNAP program. It originally was launched to stabilize the prices of agricultural products uh, very much tied to the great depression era and to some extent to benefit uh, low income families to be able to purchase more food per month but originally it didn't really have stated goals related to health and nutrition what is now happening in terms of the new dietary guidelines and the understanding that the SNAP program is a major, major safety net for many low-income families. Fifteen percent of the US population is is food insecure. And there are 40 million individuals that are receiving SNAP benefits at a cost of over 60 billion dollars per year. We now have a very good understanding of what a healthy a healthy diet is and we now have a very good understanding of the major role that SNAP benefits play in terms of food acquisition by low income families so we have brought both together and right now there are a number of federal committees trying to understand how to improve the food choices that SNAP recipients make with their benefits. So in general, there are two views that they are not necessarily mutually exclusive. One is to try to restrict the use of SNAP benefits to, say, uh, purchase uh, sodas or, or other foods that are it's very clear, they are very unhealthy, they, they are not needed for, for, for human health and, and cause harm. On the other side, we have the potential of perhaps coming up with incentives so that if we give discounts for people every time the user snap benefits for fresh fruits and vegetables, perhaps they may be able to consume more healthy products that way. At the end of the day, I think it's going to be a solution that is going to require both, and that both approaches deserve to be examined uh, carefully because I think both are needed.
1: I should have mentioned when I introduced this topic that SNAP stands for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and as I said, it was a used to be called food stamps. Um, you know, it's interesting this idea, and I've know you and I have spoken about this before. The issue of uh, whether should you should incentivize the purchase of healthy foods, or 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 not let these benefits be used for the purchase of things that the dietary guidelines themselves say people should consume less of, like sugared beverages. Um, and I know that's a very controversial issue. Um, and you're right. This is something where a lot more research will have to be done. I've heard some people, economists, even speculate that if, if the benefits um, make it less expensive to buy fruits and vegetables, that people might just buy the same amount of fruits and vegetables but save money in doing so and then use that money to buy other things um, that the, the Dietary Guidelines Committee wouldn't approve of. And so that that idea of a combination of having incentives to buy the healthy foods but not letting the benefits be used for the unhealthy foods might have to be part of the possible political consideration.
0: And And I just want to briefly add that also nutrition education has a very big role to play here because at the end of the day, if we are improving access to mm-hmm. healthy foods and we are trying to motivate people to not buy unhealthy foods. We also need to provide the transfer of the guidelines in a way that is appropriate for different groups with different health literacy levels in the country. Nutrition is a complex field, and there is a lot of room for improvement also through nutrition education, teaching families how to budget better their resources every month, reconsidering the way the SNAP benefit is being uh, delivered to households. There is no reason why it has to be once per month. It can be more than once per month, and, and so on. So what I can say is that I think that dietary guidelines have reinvigorated this debate and are generating a lot of interesting and innovative uh, ideas from academicians uh, like yourself, as well as policymakers.
1: Uh, Raphael, I've always appreciated your very thoughtful and scholarly approach to nutrition and nutrition issues. And your role on this committee just reinforces that view I have, because this is a very complicated and controversial area. So thank goodness the country has good people like you to serve on these important committees. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kelly. So our guest was Dr. Rafael Perez Escamilla, professor of epidemiology and director of the Office of Community Health at the Yale University School of Public Health. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, and there you'll find a variety of resources, including an email newsletter we send out monthly and also a list of other podcasts that we've recorded with excellent guests who have visited the Rudd Center. Thank you.